Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I had the distinct pleasure to be an invited guest on another podcast recently. Kevin Koskella is the host of the TriSwim Coach Podcast, and on his program we discussed several topics, including five common myths in triathlon, or at least myths that I have come to see that many triathletes believe, based on questions that I frequently get. If you're a regular listener, none of these myths will come as a big surprise, as they tend to be regular themes in the segments that I cover on medical questions. In no particular order, I chose those five things as recovery aids actually help with recovery, I don't need a coach to train effectively for triathlon. Product X will make me faster rather than just training more. I'm past my prime. I'm only going to get slower. And finally, quantity of training is more important than quality of training. Now, I went into a lot of detail on each of these on Kevin's show, and I would encourage you to give it a listen. Kevin is going to join me on an upcoming episode of this podcast as well to give some insight on how adult-onset swimmers can make the most of their time in the pool and dispel the notion that only high school and college competitive swimmers have a chance on race day. I'll post a link to the Try Swim Coach podcast in the show notes, and I urge you to give it a listen. It's a good one. On the show today, I continue my exploration of the issues and controversies raised by the Netflix documentary The Game Changers. It's getting late, and I'm getting into the twilight of this series with only a few interviews left to broadcast. On today's show, Chris Lieferman is a professional triathlete with much success at the Ironman distance. Chris has three Ironman victories to his name, and a top 10 finish in his Kona debut this past October. Chris also is a meat eater, and he's going to talk about how he incorporates animal products into his diet and still is able to have athletic success. Reels for Wheels has two new suggestions for you for movies to watch on the trainer, and they're quite different from the last episode. This time around, one is a British heist film, while the other is a sports comedy in the vein of Slapshot, and we have reviews of both. First, though, I have a medical question to answer. A listener wrote to ask about whether or not he should consider the expense of a TENS device. These transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation machines are marketed as having the capability to enhance strength, recovery, and improve the healing of injuries. Given how much they cost, one would hope that they could actually do all of these things. But what does the evidence say? Well, I take a look right after this. If you've listened to this podcast on any kind of a regular basis, then you know that I have covered a variety of different devices that manufacturers claim help with recovery. Some of these have been high-tech, some of them a little bit lower-tech. But to date, none of the ones that I have recovered have really lived up to the hype that the manufacturers have claimed, and so far, you're pretty much better off keeping the money in your pocket. Well, today, I'm going to answer a question that was submitted by Trey. Trey wants to know whether or not it'd be worth his time or his money to invest in a TENS device. TENS, and uh, its uh, cousin acronym NMES, leverage a type of technology known as electrical muscle stimulation, or EMS. Now, TENS devices, or transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulators, and NMES, or neuromuscular electrical stimulators, both use low levels of current to stimulate different levels of uh, nerves within the skin or the muscles in order to arrive at different kinds of results in order to enhance recovery, or so their makers claim. When attached to the skin, a typical EMS unit will deliver an electrical impulse to the body's motor nerves, or in the case of a TENS device, sensory nerves, that will cause rapid muscle contractions. And that gives you all kinds of twitches and spasms that you'll see in uh, the device's uh, videos that will show up on their websites. Now, makers of these devices claim that the contractions can help speed up recovery time, relieve pain, increase muscle strength, and even improve performance. And the two devices, the NEMS and the TENS, uh, are marketed for different uh, types of things. So the NEMS are the neuro, uh, neuromuscular 
electrical stimulation is marketed principally for improving strength and for recovery, while the TENS devices are really primarily for pain relief and for maybe a little bit of increasing recovery as well. Now, these devices are expensive. They're about 200 at the lower level, lower uh, sort of entry level, all the way up to 600 bucks, depending on what kind of currents you want to get, what kind of modes they want to offer. And uh, really, honestly, they all do do pretty much the same thing, but uh, they can be dressed up to give you different types of uh, bells and whistles, if you will. And many of them are endorsed by professionals in different kinds of sports. And as always, looking at these websites, you would think they are the end all to be all. Now, the theories behind these devices are, you know, fairly sound. The theory is that muscle contraction as we've seen with uh, some of the uh, compression wear and pneumatic compression boots, uh, muscle contraction, the idea is, can compress the muscle cells and the surrounding tissues as well. And this results in extruding fluid and getting rid of some of the inflammatory chemicals that come about whenever you uh, do hard level exercise. And uh, by getting rid of these things, you're going to reduce the amount of swelling and reduce the amount of soreness that comes about. EMS is also theorized to help improve strength because uh, when you provide an electrical current to the muscles, especially with the, uh, the NMES, the neuromuscular electrical stimulation, the deeper current, if you will, uh, what happens there is you're able to recruit larger numbers of muscle units than otherwise would be possible. So when you voluntarily contract a muscle, you recruit a whole bunch of muscle units, but when you send an electrical current, you recruit even more. And so the idea is that by recruiting these larger numbers of muscle uh, cells, you're going to actually get increased strength than otherwise would be possible. Finally, with respect to this notion that you can reduce pain, TENS, or the transcutaneous electrical stimulators, are theorized to inhibit pain receptors. Uh, what they do here is they provide a competing stimulus in the painful area that basically distracts your brain and causes the nervous system to pay attention to the signal that the TENS unit is sending and diverts your brain from focusing on the painful stimulus. Uh, the basic theory behind this is known as the, the pain gate theory. Uh, you can your pain receptors open up a gated channel. Uh, using this TENS device will actually cause a different channel to open and shut down the gate for the pain, uh, the pain stimulus, and therefore you'll no longer feel the pain to the same degree. So that's the theory. Let's look at some of the evidence. There are uh, many studies that have come out on this, and uh, I found several review studies, all of which will be listed as always in the show notes. Let's look at each of these claims in turn and see what the evidence has to say. Uh, with respect to the idea that neuromuscular electrical stimulation can enhance strength, there's actually quite a bit of research looking at these devices specifically in medical illness. And in cases where patients have suffered spinal cord injury, patients who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is known to result in significant muscle wasting, patients who are uh, spending long times in intensive care units and have uh, uh, muscle wasting related to that, and for patients who have had uh, significant surgical procedures, uh, even those who have had orthopedic procedures on uh, knees, for example, knee replacements or even uh, ACL repairs, Neuromuscular uh, stimulation does actually appear to have benefits in these patients. Uh, the reason for this is because these patients have such profound muscle wasting that applying an electrical current here will indeed recruit muscle units that otherwise aren't going to get used at all. And using neuromuscular stimulation in these patients does actually uh, result in a decrease in muscle wasting and can improve strength that otherwise is uh, not able to be seen. Now, what about for healthy individuals, patients who don't, for example, uh, lie in bed all day because they're critically ill? Uh, and specifically, what about athletes? Well, in all of the studies that have been done looking at uh, neuromuscular stimulation, uh, electrical stimulation in these kinds of people, Neuromuscular electrical stimulation is found to be better than nothing, but is not better than resistance training. That is to say, if you sit there and you put these units on your legs and you go through a whole bunch of contractions several times a day over several weeks, yeah, you're going to see some improvement in strength versus not doing anything at all. But if you use an actual weight training program, 
you're going to get significantly stronger than using the device on its own. Well, what about using the devices in conjunction with resistance training? Uh, well, in those cases, neuromuscular uh, electrical stimulation has in fact not been shown to be any better than just using resistance training. So uh, the answer here seems pretty clear that use of these devices does not actually improve strength if you're doing any kind of weight training at a baseline. So doing weight training, basically better than using these devices. Okay, uh, how about muscle fatigability? There's been some claims by the makers of these devices that uh, the use of uh, neuromuscular electrical stimulation can actually promote endurance and prevent some kind of muscle fatigue. Well, various studies have looked at uh, these devices and their ability to delay the onset of fatigue, but these studies have, for the most part, focused on individual muscle groups, and the findings there have been pretty inconsistent. Some have actually shown promise, where others have shown no difference. But it's not really clear how to extrapolate the findings from small muscle groups to overall endurance. For example, some of the studies have looked at the use of neuromuscular devices, neuromuscular electrical stimulating devices, just on the abdominal wall. And it turns out that when you use these devices on the abdominal wall repeatedly, you'll actually find that the abdominal musculature will indeed show some benefits. There will be an uh, increased time of duration until that specific muscle group will fatigue. But how does this correlate to overall body endurance? Nobody seems to know how to extrapolate that finding to endurance. So, you know, using this device on your abdominal muscle, is that going to make you able to run, you know, longer uh, with uh, improved speed? unclear. I'm not really sure how to, you know, extrapolate that and give you a, a good answer. But I would say, sure, if you if you want to have one specific muscle uh, improve uh, with its fatigability, there is some evidence that this might help. But uh, again, not really clear how to turn that into performance. The big one and the big area that uh, these devices have been promoted is in recovery. And uh, there are several aspects to recovery that have been evaluated in the medical literature on this. First and foremost, there's recovery of performance. So in other words, you've done a, uh, a high uh, you know, high intensity uh, event or a high intensity um, uh, session of training and using these devices is it going to get you back to the level that you can repeat the same level of intensity effort sooner than if you don't use this device? Well, several studies have been done to look at exactly this question. And use of the neuromuscular electrical stimulating device specifically, not TENS, but the actual NMES ones, uh, does indeed show that you can improve blood flow and metabolite removal when you use these devices. So if you check blood samples from uh, an area, say the leg or the arm, where you've had a really high intensity event uh, or a high intensity training session, you will see that blood flow improves and lactate levels actually are uh, decreased after using these devices. Great. But what does that mean in terms of the ability to return to uh, the same level of performance? Unfortunately, no improvement in performance when compared to controls has ever been seen with these devices. And this goes across running, jumping, cycling, uh, any events that have been looked at, neuromuscular electrical stimulation, while it does seem to improve blood flow and the removal of uh, metabolites, it, it doesn't result in the improvement in performance. Uh, a second area of recovery that's been looked at pretty extensively is uh, muscle soreness and uh, delayed onset muscle soreness. As uh, any triathlete knows, these are uh, major inhibitors in the ability to return to high-level uh, training. Uh, if you've had a uh, pretty hard activity, uh, you can have significant muscle soreness afterwards, and it may take a couple of days before you can get back to doing another hard activity. So uh, the makers of these devices have suggested, well, hey, if you use our device, we can decrease your muscle soreness and get you back to a, a high level of activity sooner. Well, there's been mixed results uh, using these devices. Uh, uh, some studies have suggested that uh, there are improvements in pain scores for delayed onset muscle soreness, but this has not been associated with any improvement in performance. In other words, while people in these studies will say, yeah, you know what, it doesn't seem to hurt quite as much when they actually look at objective markers of performance, they don't do any better than if they didn't use these devices. Now, with uses of the transcutaneous 
devices, the TENS devices, you could see some transient improvements in pain relief, but again, no improvement after a short time and no improvement in performance uh, when you use these devices compared to not using them. And the final area in which these devices have been looked at and in which the makers claim uh, you know, that they're useful is for injury recovery. And there have been studies to look at electro, uh, uh, electromuscular stimulation to decrease swelling, pain, and improve function after sprains. Uh, the idea here is that by causing the muscles in the area of an injury to contract, you're going to increase blood flow to that area and remove some of the edema or swelling result that results from the injury. And here, once again, studies have consistently shown that there's simply no improvement over controls or standard therapies such as ice, uh, compression, and raising the injured area. Uh, other studies have shown some improvements in the swelling and pain, but again, no change in time to return to function and no change in overall return to performance in any objective markers. So I think the take-home message uh, for TENS devices and neuromuscular electrical stimulation devices is going to be the same as several of the other devices that we've looked at, where manufacturers' claims about improving recovery are just not backed up by the evidence in the medical literature. And once again, I did a pretty comprehensive review, and all of the recent studies on this are pretty consistent. When it comes to improving recovery, you're probably best off keeping your money in your pocket, not investing a whole lot into these devices, and just doing the things that really are shown to help with recovery. And that is rest, good nutrition, and just building your training program to incorporate good amounts of recovery into your day. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. For my regular interview segment of the podcast, I'm going to continue with my series, taking a deeper dive into some of the questions raised by the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. If you haven't seen the film or heard the first interviews in this series, I would urge you to do so, though it isn't necessary before listening to this one, as each of them can stand on their own. Chris Lieferman is a professional triathlete from southern Minnesota who now lives and trains in Boulder, Colorado. Chris grew up playing sports, but primarily was involved in wrestling, baseball, and football. He moved to Fort Collins, Colorado for college and realized how big triathlon is and began to pursue it further. He met his wife, Zanna, through college and in time moved down to Boulder to live with her, where she is now in real estate. Chris is a three-time Ironman champion and placed 10th in his debut at the 2019 Kona World Championships. He is in his third year on the BMC V-Fit Tri-Team, powered by Uplace. But today, he is joining me on the TriDoc Podcast to talk about the Game Changers. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me. In your view, you've seen the film. What do you think the Game Changers gets right, and what does it get wrong about plant-based and animal-based uh, nutrition? Um, they Well, first that they get wrong thinking that you're – you absolutely have to be vegan or else you're not going to be able to perform. Uh, just they make it sound very one-sided and it's not necessarily vegetarian. Um, like it's going full on vegan and, um, they, they do get right about the environmental impact about it. I think towards the end of the movie, they do touch on that. And, uh, that has a big impact on, you know, the world today. And, uh, I, I, plant-based they also talk about the recovery of being plant-based and i think that has um a good aspect of it but it, i feel they don't, they didn't interview high caliber meat eating athletes like they only interviewed three or four vegan athletes that were really good at their sport but there's also really good people that eat meat and just completely left that out of there. And I thought that they could have had a few opposing views. Yeah. And I, and that's come up in all of the interviews that uh, I've had in the series so far is uh, that the filmmakers took a very one-sided view and uh, uh, were very biased. And I mean, you know, it's, it's their movie. They obviously had a message they wanted to, to put forward and, and that was their prerogative, but I think it would have served their, <sighs> The, the 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 point they wanted to make w would have been no less 
served if they had presented both sides with maybe a little more balance. So I, I completely agree with you. Uh, and uh, that's something that I've tried to do in this series is to try and uh, get uh, a little more balance. So uh, you yourself do uh, consume meat products and animal products as part of your regular nutrition. Um, looking yep. at the film, I mean, you know, you would think that a single meat-based meal is enough to make you sluggish and unable to perform. Has that uh, ever been your experience? <laughs> no, no, it hasn't. And I, I think what they think about meat eaters or we're trying to portray about meat eaters is that 90% of a meat eater's plate is straight meat and that 10% is grains and vegetables. Like it's, I think the majority of athletes that eat meat really have a well-proportioned diet. Like, yeah, they, they get some protein from their meat, but it's a high vegetable diet as well. It's just that they're eating meat in conjunction with that. So it's, um, you still get a lot of the benefits from the vegetables. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there's no question North American diet, uh, especially in certain parts of the United States where fried foods, uh, where we see a lot of consumption of high fat uh, in conjunction with uh, meat. So uh, if you want to think about like uh, fried chicken or if you want to think about barbecue that has a lot of fat uh, with the meat, sure. uh, yeah. yeah, you're going to see a lot of obesity there. You're going to see not so much vegetables, but rather things like French fries or mashed potatoes or things that we wouldn't consider really healthy vegetables. Then yes, if you want to focus on that, then you're going to see what you're going to see in uh, the segment of the movie where they went to the fire department. I mean, these clearly were not people eating the balanced kind of meal that you're talking about. But, yeah. you know, as, as I've said frequently in this series, if you approach diet as a balance, like you're referring to, uh, then incorporating meat products, if that's your uh, prerogative, then it can be done in a very healthy way and in a way that is uh, going to result in a very uh, nutrition-balanced and very healthy way that's going to allow you to perform at the highest level, as you have found. Um, how do you incorporate uh, meat products uh, to try and make sure that, you know, it's healthy so that you're not uh, finding that you have too much fat there because we know that meat products are a source of fat. So how do you make sure that uh, you're conscious of that when you're incorporating meat products? Yeah, well, first off, um, um, my wife and I, we're kind of environmental conscious when it comes to that. And we buy, we buy we've done this twice now, um, a quarter cow from a local a farmer. So it's a, it's a grass fed organic, um, beef and it's from, uh, out here in Fort Lupton. So just outside of Boulder and it's, you know, sustainably sourced and that, you know, helps us feel better about our impact on, you know, that that's the red meat we use, we raise chicken. So we are having, um, farm fresh eggs. We, did end up having to buy our chicken, um, from the store. So when we do that, we do, uh, we're conscious about the type of chicken that we're buying, but we also do just have lean meats. Um, the portion size is controlled. We're not filling up, um, on meat, like 50% is vegetables of our plate, you know, then, uh, 25% grains and maybe 25%, uh, with that meat. And that seems to have a really good impact that we're not just pumping down meat and we are getting a lot of a well-rounded diet that way. And you mentioned to me before we started recording that you also eat meat uh, less. So you tend to eat meat maybe 50% of your meals and the rest of your meals are actually plant-based. Um, and yep. that's another means that you can control the amount of meat products and the amount of fat that you're maybe taking in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've actually felt really good that way. And it's actually really easy. Uh, it has broadened our horizons for, uh, cooking. We also, we, we go out to eat maybe once a week. So we do all of our cooking at home and that's really nice. And it just allows us to have more control that way. When uh, you do um, 
get your meat products. Uh, I, you know, we've seen in the past, especially in professional cycling, where doping is a significant problem. Uh, often, you'll hear of cyclists say, "Oh, you know, I got this from tainted meat products, things like that." <laughs> I know it's completely absurd, but uh, is this ever something you need to worry about? I mean, I, I guess if you're sourcing your meat directly from a farm, but uh, when you're going out to eat or anything like that, is this something that ever even crosses your mind? It actually hasn't because I think it's super made up by anyone who says that they got tainted by meat. Um, and I think living here in Boulder, I, sh- I shouldn't say this across the board for all restaurants, but if we do tend to go out, I guess I have a trust in those restaurants. Um, I think we're a little special here we don't do you know chain restaurants um mostly local local good eateries here and um again getting locally sourced beef um really helps out that too but no it has never crossed my mind i it's actually never been a conversation of any of my buddies either that that's a worry so i yeah anyone who says that they got tainted meat is obviously lying (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I keep waiting for the first vegan athlete to get popped and say something like it, it tainted tofu, but you know, it tainted chickpeas. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, okay, so going back to the film, uh, The Game Changers, uh, you mentioned something to me a little earlier that was also raised in the film about how um, one of the things that keeps you from going plant based uh, completely is that you worry about missing something in your diet. Uh, so, what would be something like that that you would worry about? Um, well, the, the two obvious things that I think are drilled into, um, people who are thinking of going vegan or vegetarian are the B12 and folate, but with a, with a supplement and eating dairy, it doesn't, and eggs, it doesn't, um, necessarily be a problem. Um, I've talked to my coach and also sports nutritionist Katie Kassane about this and neither of them were like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Okay. I don't know about going, going vegetarian or limiting your meat impact and being a professional triathlete. Like it wasn't even, wasn't even, um, a thought like they just continued on with our conversation as if like, it like is, is a good thing, um, to go plant-based or to minimize your meat input. So it's, um, so you mean it's, really, it's, it's, it's taking hold in the coaching and nutrition sort of ranks amongst professional, uh, triathletes that, uh, it, it's almost an accepted way to go at this point. It's, it's accepted. Yeah. Um, going vegan, I think is a whole nother level, but as long as you're, um, octolavo, you're definitely uh, catching all of those, um, nutrients. So I'm really not too worried about it, but the two obvious ones would have been B12 and folate, but, um, doesn't really concern me too much anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, you also mentioned, uh, that, uh, you would have liked to have seen them interview some meat eaters, uh, in the film that that would have helped balance things out. Is there anything else you would have liked to have seen in the film that, uh, would have made it a little, sort of easier to swallow um i think that that blood sampling when they're like here's your blood on meat here's your blood on vegan and but what's that mean they just go this is clear this is not clear what well, is not clear was good they just gave us like a visual aspect of it and then we're like oh unclear is bad <laughs> clear is good but in reality it's like what what does that mean? You know, um, I'm really happy to hear you mention that because uh, I, I've chatted about that with a couple of the other guests who have uh, science backgrounds, and we both sort of commented that, you know, to us, that really was not fair because they didn't explain it very well. But I had always sort of thought in the back of my mind that to a layperson without uh, the, you know, good training, that that was like one of those visual tricks that they could use to kind of pull one over on people. And I'm really happy to hear you say, that uh, no, actually, they didn't pull one over on me at all. That, uh, that <laughs> without context and without explaining, that that really doesn't mean anything. Because they did that a lot in the film. They used a lot of visual imagery, a lot of graphs, a lot of uh, um, animations and stuff that were not contextualized very well. And 
uh, because of that, uh, were quite misleading. Yeah, um, I thought there could be a little more explanation on that. I know they had to fill a lot of con- content in a short amount of time, um, but yeah, they could have gone in depth on that. Um, and th- they just kind of seem limited. They had a, a track cyclist. They had a 60-year-old um, you know, guy who was ripped as being a vegan. Uh, who else did they have? Oh, they had um, Diaz, Nate Diaz, as a, as a UFC fighter. Um, it just seemed like they had three three or four athletes and you know, there's so many good meat eaters out there. It's like in, in other sports that have Olympic gold medals and world championships. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's not just one-sided Yeah, and yeah. they could, they could have, and I know that would have probably deflated their, uh, their point. So they yeah. didn't do it. Yeah. Um, so let's go the other way then, and let's talk about some of the other uh, things that you've encountered along your journey uh, to becoming an elite-level triathlete. Uh, I'm sure you've encountered many of these fad diets, paleo or keto or any of those other things. What's been your approach to, you know, when those things are presented? I just kind of get a little annoyed by the people that are presenting them to me <laughs> because, like, paleo, it, it, it's a lifestyle change. This isn't, this isn't a fad. Like if you're going to go on a diet, if you're going to pursue something, you have to look at it as a lifestyle change and not just a diet. And I see so many people cheat on diets and, uh, my aunt, she's keto, but she drinks beer all the time. And I'm just like, what, what's going on here? Like, it just seems, and then she pushes keto. She like, she's a hundred percent into keto and except when she has a beer. Except when she's drinking, and that happens quite often. Um, so it's just it's just weird, and I think that you have to really think about these diets as a lifestyle change. And um, paleo is just really tarred because our day society we like to go out and eat, and it, that really restricts almost any time you go out to eat. Um, uh, gluten-free is easier nowadays, especially where I live. Um, dairy-free is pretty easy as well, but it's, it's just really hard hearing some of these people push it and really don't have anything to back it up. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that. Um, so I, I, I got one more thing to ask you, and it's a little bit off of the topic we've been talking about. I, I know as a professional triathlete, you guys are uh, – it's tough to make a living. I mean, let's face it, purses are small. Uh, you don't have a ton of endorsement opportunities. And that sometimes puts you in a tough place because you'll be approached by people who maybe want you to endorse a product that you may or may not believe in. And so you're faced with, uh, hmm, let's see, I've got this – person wanting to give me some money to push a product that, well, maybe I don't necessarily 100% believe in. So so what's the calculus that goes into that? Because I know I've seen, you know, I could give you some examples of like athletes, professional triathletes that I sort of see pushing products that I'm like, oh my God, really? Like, uh, <laughs> I sort of like, I lose respect for them. But I, at the same time, I understand, the, you know, that they, they have to make a living. So so what's that like for you guys? Um, it's... I'm not a used car salesman, so it's really hard for me to do that. And I actually lose respect for myself when I do that. Um, I think I actually, I have fallen victim to that a couple years ago and I did not like it. Um, and, but when the money's green, (laughs) it's, um, you kind of want to take advantage of it, but I think I'm in a fortunate position right now with my team that I can pick and choose. We're sponsored by a bunch of good companies and it, I'm happy to promote all of them. And, but I do see that and like it, it, I tend to lose respect for some people who are pushing these weird oxygen mouth guard things or, uh, maybe the deal work, but I just think it's all really niche and, um, people trying to get into the market and they find a professional triathlete or runner or something and someone willing to push it. But no, for me, it's like, I kind of lose respect for myself doing that. And it, it's hard. 
It's tough. I, I feel bad because, like I said, I feel like they're in a really tough spot. But at the same time, at the same time, I'm like, gosh, you know, you're you're using your name and and your reputation. And then there's a bunch of triathletes out there who are looking at you and um, are going to go out and spend money, money that they don't have necessarily a lot of either. And uh, yeah. on a product that maybe products that I have reviewed on this podcast. and <laughs> <laughs> So that's why I sometimes sort of find myself wondering. But at the same time, I, I completely understand. I mean, I, I mean, I look at, you know, you and uh, your colleagues, and I, uh, I so envy what you're able to do. But I do not envy the fact that um, it is a job. And uh, that if you're not winning, you're not necessarily getting an income. So I totally understand. It's a difficult position. Yeah. 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 And I think with uh, today's, uh, the way social media is going, like everything, it's almost not even winning anymore. Like you can, you can sustain yourself just by social media. So, and pushing products that you may not believe in, a lot of people tend to do it. Um, I will, I think that's probably my career goal is to never fall victim to that. Once it, once it comes to that, I think, um, I think it's done. <laughs> I think yeah. it's time for me to move on because I, I have to, I can't sell something that I don't believe in. Right. Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Chris Lieferman is a professional triathlete who lives in uh, Boulder, Colorado. He is a three-time Ironman champion and in his debut at Kona this year, finished 10th. What was that like? That was pretty cool. Um, I did not know what to expect. I just went and raced a conservative race. Cause I know, um, you know, just so many people blow up. It's, it's hot, it's competitive. Uh, everyone's wanting to win. And I had zero expectations for me. I was an underdog. Uh, people didn't expect me to win. So I was there to go and feel out the race and just go have a good experience and learn from it. I hope, you know, next year and the years to come, I can, uh, keep stepping forward. And I think 10th place for my first time was, was pretty rad. So I'll take it. I'll agree. My first time there, I did not finish 10th, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> congratulations. And thank you again so much for uh, joining me today to talk about, uh, your diet and your feelings and, uh, opinions about, uh, the Netflix documentary, the game changers. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's time again for Reels for Wheels, that part of the program when I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Janetta Iwanaki, multiple Ironman finisher, to give you some suggestions for films to watch while you're whiling away time on the trainer. January is just about done, so we can start to look forward to the longer days, some warmth and maybe getting outside, but for now, we're still going to be spending some time in the pain cave. And so I'd like to welcome Janetta back once again to discuss and recommend some movie suggestions for you while you're toiling away. Welcome back, Janetta. Thanks. Uh, glad to be back. We actually had a little bit of snow last night, so it's uh, perfect timing to be back in the cave again. I know. I got up this morning and I found the snow out there and I was like, when did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that we'll see some warm. Uh, it's going to be very warm this coming weekend here in Denver. We're looking at 70 degrees, which is going to be very nice. But uh, it, winter's not done. And so uh, definitely trainer time is going to continue. So what have you got for us this time? Uh, So today we have one of my favorite underdog sports movies uh, called Goon, G-O-O-N, just because it's not a word that we often use unless you're really into hockey and people who fight a lot on the ice. Um, And it's a movie that was just so much better than I ever thought it could be. I stumbled onto it almost by accident, um, looking through just potential sports underdog films. And I have watched it many times since then. Yeah, and you uh, mentioned it to me that you were going to be talking about it. I took a look on uh, IMDb, watched the trailer, and uh, I have to say, as a a longtime hockey fan, and I mentioned to you before we started recording, you know, anytime a movie is going to promote the idea that hockey is about fighting, I always get a little bit squirrely. But uh, as was the case for the movie Slapshot, which really kind of, you know, went to great lengths to show that hockey was really much more than that. I understand Goon does the same. Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, the trailer doesn't necessarily bring that through. Um, But really, at its heart, what it is is the story of someone who feels a bit out of place in the world. Um, He comes from a family of all doctors who are very academic people. 
Um, and really, uh, that's not his thing. And it has a hard time sort of figuring out what he's good at in life. Um, and happens to discover that one of the things he's really good at is protecting people he cares about. And it turns out that that translates really well to becoming a hockey enforcer or goon, as they like to call him in the movie. Yeah. And uh, I was impressed with uh, the fact that it's a Canadian film, being from Canada myself. Yes. I recognized many of the... Uh, you know, major players, really, the actors uh, that uh, you probably wouldn't recognize if uh, you aren't familiar with uh, the liturgy of Canadian TV and film. <laughs> um, but uh, there are some uh, folks there that uh, people would know. Eugene Levy uh, has a role in here. Yep. And uh, for hockey fans, uh, I did see in the trailer that uh, George LaRock actually was there. Yep. Uh, and yep. I'm sure there are other hockey players that I didn't see. Yeah. But yeah, I was quite uh, impressed uh, with uh, one of the main protagonists in the film being played by Leif Schreiber. Yeah. And he uh, is actually fantastic. I mean, talk about an actor you wouldn't necessarily expect to show up in a small Canadian indie film about a small, tiny hockey team. Um, but he is fantastic in the role. He really brings a lot of intensity to it. And a lot, too, I think, of understanding how somebody totally embraces that role. He plays um, really uh, – so Sean William Scott plays the primary character and really the lead role um, of this guy who's new to minor league hockey. And Liv Schreibner plays um, sort of his counterpart who's older, wiser, um, and really his uh, – both his nemesis and sort of his inspiration in a lot of this. Um, and it's a very interesting relationship, too. So it gives you a lot of insight into what that world is like. So you're the new me, eh? <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't think so. Everyone else seems to. It's good. Good for you, kid. Thank you. So what are you doing wandering around St. John's at 3 o'clock in the morning? Aren't you guys playing us tonight? Uh, yeah. But uh, not me. I got suspended a game. Too bad. I ain't much for waiting around. You're a tough little bastard out there. You can fucking bang. Thank you. Thanks so much. So I'm gonna impart some of the wisdom of my years on you. And I could really use some of that. Everybody loves the soldiers until they come home and stop fighting. You understand what I'm saying? Hmm. Mm, I don't know. No. Kid, you got this thing. The stuff, the shit, the fucking grit. You got it, like me. But like me, that's all you fucking got. And like me, you're no good to anyone doing anything else. All I'm saying is don't go trying to be a hockey player. You get your fucking heart ripped out. And one of the things that I took from the trailer that... Um I know is very much true in hockey was uh, the mutual respect that the represented or that the respective fighters on each team had for each other. Uh, fighting in hockey is definitely it's much less of a part of hockey than it used to be. Uh, when I was growing up, watching hockey, fighting was really a much bigger part of it, but it's it's become less so. But what what remains? Um, these guys who have this role on their teams really have a very you know, great respect for each other. They see each other as uh, uh, part of a, a league, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, within a league. And, uh, you know, what you could see in the trailer where um, Leif Schreiber's character actually has coffee with uh, mm -hmm. the protagonist yeah. in this film and they're discussing, you know, look, if it comes down to it, we're going to go and it's going to be me against you and it's going to be, you know, for I'm real. Win, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and even with George LaRock, same thing, where they're lining up for a face-off yep. and George says, hey, you want to go? Is this a good time? And, uh, you know, the other guys, absolutely, let's do it. And, and you know, according to a lot of interviews I've heard with these kinds of players, that does happen. That, that is very yeah. true to life. And there are those moments of not just respect, but almost acknowledgement that go, that's, they actually do a great job of capturing right before the gloves come off, um, right. that those moments of connection that are uh, really intense. Yeah. Um, and certainly, I think that's one of the things I really liked about the film. And from that idea of respect as well, the other thing that I really liked was that it made it really clear that, um, you know, Doug the Thug, his role is not, he doesn't see it to go out there and hurt somebody else or cause harm. He sees it, he's protecting his teammate. Right. Um, and he, that's very much how he views his role and his job. And he's absolutely invested in that. And so for him, his, fighting is really a big representation of how important his team to his, is to him. Um, and that's something that I found oddly touching um, yeah. and really uh, pretty insightful in this movie. And you mentioned to me that this is based on 
true events? It is, yeah. So it's based on um, a memoir of a guy who actually became a minor league um, hockey enforcer um, from really out of nowhere and couldn't skate when he started, just like this guy. Wow. Uh, so it really just happened to be um, somebody who found their calling. That's pretty um, cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to give it a watch because uh, your recommendations are always uh, excellent. <laughs> uh, although recently we may have had a, a disagreement on one of them, but that's okay. Fair enough, fair yeah. enough. Uh, but this one I'm definitely going to give a watch because uh, I can see it's coming from people who respect the game and aren't absolutely. exploiting the fighting in the way that I had feared initially. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it gives a lot more depth and a lot of respect to sort of that team dynamic. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I love about it as uh, something to watch on the trainer is it I, I've always been a hockey fan, um, but I think by having the fights be an important component, but not necessarily the entire focus, it gives you these episodic bouts of action that I don't always expect from watching even a sports movie or an underdog film. So cool. it's got that nice yeah. uh, sort of balance there. What kind of trainer rides uh, do you think are suitable for this film? I like it for short intervals, actually. Okay. Um, yeah. And it, it sort of lines up nicely with the action components. The comedy keeps you entertained in between. Uh, fair warning, though, if you've got young kids around, there are a lot of expletives in this film, and so you may want to yeah. decide how you want to manage your volume right. <laughs> if you've got kids in the house. Okay, great. Uh, well, for my recommendation this time, uh, the film that I am going to suggest is Layer Cake. Now, Layer Cake is uh, uh, very much in keeping with uh, films that we have talked about in the past because it's got tons of connections to many of the films uh, that we have reviewed before. So it's directed by Matthew Vaughn, who uh, directed Kick-Ass and Kingsman, both films we've talked about, and it stars Daniel Craig and Tom Hardy, both of whom have been in many of the films we've reviewed before. Sienna Miller is also in this. Uh, this is uh, not, however, in line with uh, the idea that movies should be easy to follow. This is uh, <laughs> this is a story that's a little bit convoluted and definitely requires your uh, attention in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel Craig plays a respected cocaine dealer. Uh, he wants to get out uh, of uh, the crime scene. Uh, he's trying to get out early, but he's forced by his boss to undertake one last job. So this is one of those, you know, one last job movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, this turns out to be incredibly complicated and convoluted. Uh, it involves bumbling crooks, a murderous Serbian gang, two million uh, pounds worth of uh, pounds in terms of currency as opposed to weight of ecstasy, uh, as well as a whole series of double crossing. And the title Layer Cake uh, refers not so much to the layers of complications, but rather to the layers or levels anyone in business goes through in rising to the top. And what's revealed is really a modern underworld where the rules have changed, there's no codes or families anymore, and respect really lasts only as long as a line. Uh, not knowing who he can trust, uh, he has to use all of his savvy telling and skills, which make him one of the best in order to s escape and become uh, the cream of the crust and get himself to the top of the cake. And uh, I, I really enjoyed this film. I found it to be... Uh, completely unexpected uh, at every turn. It's uh, very much in the same vein as movies like Snatch um, uh, or um, the other uh, films that uh, Guy Pierce has uh, done. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's just a, it's a fun, rollicking sort of, you know, movie with a lot of great actors in it uh, yeah. that uh, do a great job of making a, a fun story already to be even that much more enjoyable. When I was born, the world was a far simpler place. It was all just cops and robbers. But it wasn't for me. Then came the summer of love. Hashish and LSD arrived on the scene. There were villains locked away for 12 years for robbing a bank of 10 grand, doing time with drippy hippies who were doing 12 months for smuggling 2 million quids worth of puff. I mean, work it out, mate. We're in the wrong fucking game. Drugs changed everything. Yeah, and I'll be honest, uh, the first time I watched it, I'm not sure I totally got the entire story of what was going on, but I enjoyed it regardless. Mm -hmm. um, 
But it's interesting, though. The reason I watched it the first time was they just announced Daniel Craig as the next James Bond. And I looked at a picture of him, and I was like, there's no way this guy could yeah. play anybody like that. So then I went and watched Layer Cake, and I was like, all right, he's got some action chops. This actually yeah. could work out pretty well. And especially with the turn that they took in the new James Bond films towards being a bit grittier, more of a street fighter, it really was a very natural fit. And I think Layer Cake, uh, for me, at least mentally, really set that up I the agree. way that I can appreciate it. I agree. I think this was the most natural sort of transition for him as an actor for, you know, going mm -hmm. from this movie to James Bond makes a lot of sense. If you haven't seen this movie yet, seeing the James Bond movies yeah. and then seeing this movie, you could see the transition like, oh, very Oh, yeah, easily. I can see how they yeah. came to where he just embodies that role right. as it's defined now yeah because we've seen him now in a lot of other movies uh, a recent film that's come out mm -hmm. um um uh, the knives, uh, knives out, knives out. Which ah, uh, I haven't seen it yet. I know Ryan jo Ryan uh, Johnson, one of my favorite directors. Uh, and got a great it's got cast. a phenomenal cast. But we'll again, have to Daniel add this to Craig, a future podcast. exactly. <laughs> but Daniel Craig once again showing his range of being able to play such you know very different type of characters. Um, really has had those opportunities because of you know what he did in the Bond films and. This layer cake was sort of the closest to anything he's done in James Bond, and yeah. I've seen since then he's done just wildly disparate things. So it's been kind of fun to see yeah. his evolution as an actor. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the director, Matthew Vaughn, this is like right in keeping with his other films. It's uh, very quick-paced, uh, lots of, uh, you know, uh, very fast edits, and, and it keeps you very entertained. Um Definitely, you're going to want to watch this movie with headphones <laughs> because mm -hmm. you really do have to pay attention to the story. So it's not the kind of thing where you're going to be doing really high-intensity intervals because if you if you lose track, you're going to lose track of the movie. So, you know, a longer sort of, you know, moderate to, you know, lower-intensity workout, this is the perfect film. I, I really enjoyed it and found that the movie um, really was fast-paced and kept me motivated. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. It's one that I've come back to a couple of times, for, especially for, you know, intense, longer work. I find it really enjoyable. Do you have particular other types of things that you like to be sure you're doing during those workouts or just long intervals? Yeah, I think longer steady state type stuff or, you know, I mean, it's fine if you've got some shorter, you know, real VO2 type things. That's fine, mm -hmm. but nothing that's going to divert you too, from too much from paying attention exactly to you got it because because yeah. the story is pretty intricate and yeah. this is one of those where you have to be able to pay attention yeah so. that's a great point yeah i agree all right. Well, uh, that uh, ends this uh, particular episode of Reels for Wheels. As always, I will update uh, the archives that can be found on both uh, the TriDoc podcast and the TriDoc coaching websites, uh, where you can find all of the films that we've discussed to date. And uh, Janetta will be back uh, once again uh, for another episode of Reels for Wheels. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. As always, links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you could find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you will visit and give small, independent bands a chance. On the next episode of the TriDoc Podcast, I'll continue my series into some of the issues raised by the Netflix documentary The Game Changers. For the sixth episode in the series, I will be joined by an environmental engineer and a co-author of a study for the Pew Charitable Trusts on the environmental impacts of industrial farming. Dr. Rolf Halden is a professor at Arizona State University and extremely well-positioned to comment on what the film gets right and wrong about meat production and the health of our planet. I will also have a medical question to answer and another episode of Reels for Wheels. Until then, train hard, train healthy.